0: Locate okay, in your Bibles Romans chapter fifteen. Romans fifteen, and I'm going to read from verse fourteen. But I trust that as we uh, acquaint ourselves with uh, this this wider text. Um, it will make a great deal more sense. Let's read verse 14. Romans 15, 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. 14. Once again, can we read it together? I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Uh, that's it, i uh, very keen, that's great. Um, we, uh, we will be this evening, normally we, we are uh, talking about this in the morning, but we're continuing our series on vintage Christian qualities of the Christ-abiding life. We remember in John chapter 15, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ said, Abide in me and you will bear fruit. I keep saying it in hopes that um, someone will remember it. Jesus did not command you to bear fruit. Jesus commanded you to abide in Him. As you abide in Him, you will bear fruit. So many Christians are obsessed with the fruit that they forget to be obsessed with Christ. So many Christians are focused on the fruit that they are crippled by a lack of assurance because it never quite measures up to the standard that they hope to achieve because they're not looking to Jesus Christ. They're looking inwardly at themselves, what they have, what they don't have, what they do, what they don't do, all of these things. When I am uh, talking with people about their um, uh, their spiritual growth, their spiritual health, they will often comment on the things that they are doing and not doing, and they are discouraged by that. And I would um, remind you that you will in all probability, always be discouraged if you are perpetually looking inwardly at yourself, at what you do and do not do, uh, to the um, uh, distraction of looking to Jesus Christ and all that He is and all that He has done. As you are amazed by God and as you are amazed by Jesus Christ, that propels you to a life of freedom and worship, in which you know your sins are forgiven. Justice is satisfied. Eternal wrath, righteous wrath, is turned away. Your sins are washed away. You who were far are brought near. And having been brought near, you have free and bold access to the throne of grace. And so when we when we see in this passage uh, that we are full of goodness, we are hearing words that are written to followers of Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 5, also addressed to a network of churches in what is modern-day Turkey, says the fruit of the flesh is this, works of the flesh is this, the fruit of the Spirit. Another thing I must keep repeating. uh, We we have to change things sometimes incrementally and all it takes is persuading one person. It is the fruit... Of the Spirit is not the fruits of the Spirit are. The fruit of the Spirit, think in terms of a grape, a cluster of grapes, one fruit, multiple grapes. You cannot have one thing more and one thing less and one thing not at all, and this be the fruit of the Spirit. Okay, so um, uh, the fruit of the Spirit is, and we've worked through up to this point, goodness. Goodness. What is goodness? Well, the word specifically used by the Apostle Paul in his uh, writing language, at least, is means that which is um, inherently good, intrinsically good, but that's just using the same word in the definition, so it doesn't help. It is only ever and quite rarely used of believers. It occurs four times in the New Testament. It is only a biblical term. It does not seem to appear at all in any secular works, Greek works of that time. So it is a unique word that is applied to followers of Jesus Christ. And it does refer to something which is an intrinsic quality, a personal quality with stress on the kindly, as one commentator has put it, the kindly rather than the righteous side of goodness. I'm not sure how helpful that is, so uh, if I can define it more in uh, my terms. I believe that goodness, as we see it in the various passages, just four, where it appears, it refers to uprightness in heart and life, which flows out in acts of charity, mercy, and kindness with a strong connotation of doing good to others. And yes, as a moral obligation. When we think of what is good, we often think of what is righteous and just. And good, therefore, can be connected, in our thinking, to punitive or retributive justice. It is good that the one who does the crime does the time. It is good. Difficult though it may be. But the good described here is not so much about punitive or retributive justice. Paying someone what is their due or paying back someone for some wrong that they have committed. Rather, it is more concerned with distributive justice. How do you treat people around you? How do you talk to them? How do you interact with the world in which you live? Can people say when they see what you do? That is a good person. We might think of the Old Testament. What does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. That is good. And it is good that we pursue that kind of life. Now, if you have a problem with that sort of language, the language of goodness, then you have a problem with the text. Paul says he is satisfied with the Roman Christians that they are full of goodness. For some people, maybe some of you, you may have a limited definition of yourself, even as a follower of Christ. Uh, You have limited yourself to who you were and what you were like before you came to faith in Christ. Does anyone know what I'm talking about at this point? So, where, where um, you talk about you are full of goodness. You say, you Paul could say to someone, Oh, I am satisfied with you that you're full of goodness. And this sort of person responds by recoiling, No, I'm only full of sin. <laughs> Very persuaded by the doctrine of total depravity, it seems, but um, perhaps running with it in a less than healthy direction. Maybe you are stuck in a pattern of thinking of yourself as one still newly convicted of the sinfulness of sin, the shamefulness of sin, and confronted with the just terrors of the law and the price that must be paid. and so you're you're thinking oh, I'm, I'm I'm a wretch, I'm a worm i'm just I'm just wicked no one is righteous, no one, no one seeks for God, and you're all Romans 3 before the cross. Unfortunately, there are some sermons that are like that. There are some emphases that we might have in our own lives that emphasize those things even to a Christ-following audience instead of a more edifying and encouraging message of... You have professed your faith in Jesus Christ. That has implications, absolutely. But it starts with, you have been brought near. You know peace by the blood of the cross. It's not not healthy for you or really anyone else spiritually to be so consumed with um, uh, yourself at this level of pre-christian identity i'm just a wretch i'm just a filthy sinner i'm just a spiritual worm and this works itself out in an exhausting pattern of performance and a box-ticking approach to spirituality and the christian life that is not the joyful worshipful response of a forever forever grateful christ abiding christian right so so, I am not speaking against righteousness. I all sermons about goodness. But I'm saying that there, there are people who have a problem with even thinking about goodness and, and talking practically about what it looks like because they're so holed up in the no, no, a true biblical statement. No one is good. Jesus himself said it. No one's good. Paul said no one's good. No, no. They're using the word in a different context with a different meaning and a different. From a different perspective, Paul is speaking of those who are abiding in Jesus, who are bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit. He's not saying this goodness flows out of you in your flesh, but he is saying it flows out of you naturally by the Holy Spirit if indeed He dwells within you. Uh, You know, you, you need to remember that you are raised to walk in newness of life. That you are a new creation. That old things have passed away, behold, all things have become new. That you are remade in the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. That you were far, but now you have been brought near. But I know in any gathering, there's going to be nuances and complexities. And so maybe you have a very different problem altogether. You see, for some, they profess to be abiding in Christ, but they don't seem to be resting in in the assurance of that. But for others, they see themselves as already good, as though their goodness is theirs apart from Christ. They're not abiding in Christ, but in themselves. And they are proud, not seeing how far they fall short and how they must depend upon Christ for their goodness. You see that these are opposite but similar problems. Both of them reflect to some degree a measure of self-reliance. What I want you to remember is, again, John 15, Jesus is the vine. You are the branches. If you abide in Christ, you will bear fruit. Uh, Jesus enters the picture. God expects you to be good and do good as He is good, but you can't be. So Jesus enters the picture and is everything you are not and does everything you should do but can't do. So you can trust in Him you can plant yourself in Him and having become rooted and grounded in Him and growing up in Him, you have spiritual power from Him and an example in Him so you can, after all, be and do good. Now operating from a different foundation. Not relying on yourself, but relying on Jesus. Are you following me? Okay. All that sounds very good. Going to try not to overuse that word this evening. But defining goodness is all very abstract for something that is seen, known, and even felt. Goodness must be demonstrated. With gospel foundations established, what does goodness look like? So I hope you understand I'm approaching this from a a Christ-abiding place. As we abide in Christ, we are empowered to lives of goodness. What is goodness? Goodness is strong. Look at verse 1 of chapter 15. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. This is the type of goodness that the church in Rome is full of. I've over the years um, spoken about a philosophical system that I see influencing in various ways, knowingly and unknowingly, our culture and particularly young men. Uh, that is uh, the uh, philosophy of Nietzscheanism. Uh, 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 Frederick Nietzsche has a very uh, interesting frankly, over-influence in certain quarters. Uh, I detect, even where people don't have a clue who he is, I detect certain messages from him in people's approach. Uh, As I said, it seems to be picked up particularly by uh, disillusioned, disaffected, disoriented young men. Uh, Nietzsche asked this question, What is good? All that heightens the feelings of power the will to power, power itself in man. What is bad? All that proceeds from weakness. He added, the weak and the ill-constituted shall perish, and one shall help them to do so. Bit dark. He wrote this, fittingly enough, in a book entitled The Antichrist. It is completely opposed to the Christian view of strength, but its echoes can be heard in the way people speak and write today, not least about strength, about identity, about nationhood, about masculinity. You name the subject many things that appeal to various quarters of our society. In Woodgreen, I've had these conversations where people have shared effectively, young men have shared that good is power and power is good. Very different understanding. The tragedy of this man who wrote these words is that he was very weak and ill-constituted. In fact, his last words, would you believe it? Mother, I am stupid after which he became mute, demented, and totally dependent on the care of others for the remaining decade of his life. There is a sense of responsibility in the strength of Christian goodness. It is a responsibility not to crush the weak, I I saw a boxing uh, jersey once. I think it was Everlast. And it said, uh, crush the weak. It's what they're there for. That's not a Christian view of goodness. It's not a Christian view of power or strength or responsibility or anything really. Especially not of the weak or the vulnerable. We have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Bearing with the failings of the weak. Bearing with the infirmities of the weak. Some translations render that the bearing with the scruples of the weak. The context is that there are people in our churches that we might find difficult They have a different view on something. We have a different view than them. They have a different view than us. And we could clash on these things, but we will not because we are one in Christ. And so he's saying we have an obligation. This person is made to stumble by something I might do. I'm going to not do that in their presence i'm not going to do something that they will be offended by or maybe i'm not it could be more conversational you know what i'm not going to talk about that particular subject we're not talking about gospel things here okay but that particular subject or issue around them because it's unnecessary it's contentious and if they throw um, a line out i'm not going to take the bait because I'm determined to live, so far as it depends upon me, at peace with my brothers and sisters. Okay, do I find it vexing? Maybe, yes. But can I live with it? Absolutely. I'd rather, I'd rather live with that disagreement and live with them as a brother or sister in Christ. They have their quirks. They have their eccentricities. They look at me and say he has his quirks and his eccentricities. So, you know, and all balances out. Why don't we focus more on Jesus Christ and over all of the various petty things that we could get uh, distracted by? You know, there are ideas, not foundational ideas, but nonetheless things we think are important, things that we disagree with others on. There's also uh, personalities. Sometimes there's nothing that you can really pin down. It's just there's someone that you clash with for some reason and you don't understand it. Um, Press into that. Sometimes I tell people to, in that situation, not expose themselves less to that person, but more to that person. Get to know them. Ask them questions. Talk with them. Have a coffee with them. Have a meal with them. Meals bring down barriers because meals are uh, ancient demonstrations of fellowship. And as you get to know each other, you might be able to understand each other a little more and walk in goodness toward each other. And this is one of the things, not the only thing, but one of the things that we want to achieve through our small groups. We want people to have that interaction with people they might not normally interact at a deeper, more personal level with. We want outside the small groups people to be interacting with each other at a a very practical and personal level and helping each other. Those groups are there to facilitate that. We have an obligation. You know th- These things may be areas where we feel passionately or dispassionately enough that we take or give offense. So the Apostle Paul calls us to just burn it all down. Just, you know, it's not worth it. Why don't you just pack it in and jump ship? Absolutely not. No, he encourages us to endurance. Look at this. And that endurance he knows is not in us. He points us to the Word, to be encouraged to endure. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And then he knows, you know what? It's actually not enough for Christian people to go and read the Bible and take the encouragement they need to endure. We need to go to God. We need to pray about it because ultimately this is fruit of the Spirit that He works out in our life. Thus He prays, verse 5, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. So he's, He's saying that Uh, Rooted in Jesus, you will be strong. You can be strong as He is strong. And that strength is not an oppressive strength. It's not a strength of self-will and um, oppressive power. But it is a strength that gets down alongside the weak and helps them. We who are strong. Goodness is strong. But I must also say goodness is servant-hearted. It's linked in some ways. One of the reasons people struggle with the strength of goodness is that they do not recognize the strength in service. Do we understand that? Do you see what I'm saying there? People don't see the strength in serving others. To be strong in our culture is to be served, not to serve. To be the boss which is affiliated with strength, is to lord it over people. It's at some measure to be feared, to be superior, and to have the power to disrupt, damage, or destroy those who are beneath you. Not to say that you're, you're a nasty guy and you would actually use that power, but you have the power. And that equals strength and that equals goodness in this cultural context. That's not the goodness of Christ, nor should it be the goodness of his people. He says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and what? Not to please ourselves. In other words, it's not about you or me. It's about the other person that God has placed in our life to care for, to bear with, to minister to in some way and that is truly good. Uh, You know, the accusation of, of many, including the aforementioned philosopher, is that Christianity, in his words, produces tame domestic animals instead of great human beings. And I've heard that sentiment in plenty of places. Yet here we are, think about it, here we are tonight gathered as a Very small representation of an innumerable group of people throughout history and even this very day, which we cannot fathom, who have gathered and are gathering in various parts of the world to think about Christ, around whom our very calendars are ordered and our weeks are scheduled, who in the words of Scripture made himself nothing. Seems pretty great. And indeed, it is great and good. Rooted in Jesus, you can serve as He has served. Verse 2 says, because He knows we can't do it in our own strength, but it proceeds naturally out of the Christ-abiding life, out of divine Jesus. For Christ did not please Himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Goodness is servant-hearted. And keep moving. Goodness is shared. Look at verse 2. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. People have confused what is good with what makes them feel good which is not really about making them feel good, but rather about giving them a sense of enjoyment and pleasure. So it's actually not about good. It's just about pleasure. And that often is enjoyed from a place of power and relative privilege. Again, Nietzsche, one must shed the bad taste of wanting to agree with many. Good is no longer good when one's neighbor mouths it. In other words, he's saying if your neighbor says, oh, that's good. Or this is a good thing. It's not good anymore. You just ruined it. How could there be a common good, he asks? The term contradicts itself. Whatever can be common has little value. So in other words, he's saying this this guy who has way too much influence to this day inexplicably, is saying that if other people are agreeable, then it must not be good. If it's common, then it's not really good. Because his definition of good is great. And great requires a hierarchy of power, which requires an oppressive relationship with someone that is deemed your inferior, who is there to be oppressed. Oppressed. Do we see how this way of thinking is layered into our society? At an interpersonal and systemic level, the goodness of God flips the script. It reverses that. Again, Christ did not please Himself. But rather, ultimately, what He does is we can say it for our pleasure. Not in the hedonistic sense which is self-serving, but in the saving sense, which is delivering and, and redemptive. This is not about people-pleasing in a performative way, but genuinely helping. And as you are helpful, you're, he's saying to you, Christians, you're not making a sacrifice for sin. No one's saying that. But you are reflecting Christ's sacrifice as you offer what is elsewhere called a sacrifice of praise. In Hebrews chapter 13, we are told, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And this is why we do so much... Of what we do as a church, uh, it could be the food bank. It could be providing crisis accommodation. It could be giving time for someone who's who's lonely. It could be providing hospitality. It could be making food and sharing it around with others, or or delivering food to people who are in need, or it, um, uh, giving. Uh, to people who come as I've already mentioned. It could be meeting up for a coffee or a meal or a chat. It could be driving people as um, uh, different ones have done for different people who are in need. It, it, it could be providing um, a relief work or just an interpersonal friendship to someone who, who needs a chat. Uh, it could be providing um, uh, language classes to people like Ukrainian refugees which we have done or supporting um, uh, the Albanian fellowship as they uh, support people through various immigration issues and language study issues and all sorts. It could be community work more broadly or providing marriage counseling or counseling more broadly. With all of the various issues that come on our plate. It could be the support groups like we see with um, the uh, the single moms and the step moms every two weeks on a Wednesday night or the um, the Portuguese moms on a Wednesday afternoon. It could be personal and small group discipleship or individual mentoring and leadership training. The list goes on. All of these things happen Not abstractly, not hypothetically. Different brothers and sisters in the church are involved in these things in this hall. Or the one back there, or the one one rode over. That's a lot of stuff. And it's good. And I believe it's good by the power of God. Because God knows we don't have the capacity. We don't have the strength. But somehow, we manage. Why? Because He's empowering us. And we're filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. He opens doors. We walk through them until He says stop. In our halls, at our homes, in the wider community. And I've mentioned the things that, that like, they're kind of organized. But what are the things that you do that no one knows, that no one talks about, that no one sees, but as a follower of Jesus Christ, Someone else is blessed. You might not even remember what you did, that kind word that you offered, that that way you provided assistance, but God sees and knows, and it is good. It's good because it's washed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And as we commit ourselves to this this, uh, sharing life, we're told in the text, verses 5 through 7, um, that it's, it's harmonious. He uses the language of, of singing, um, that you would live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Together, all different in many ways, some weak, some strong, Some who are weak think they're strong and some who are strong think they're weak and we're all messed up in different ways. We have challenges, we have distractions, we have difficulties, we have needs. And yet the Lord empowering us by the Holy Spirit keeps us together in Jesus Christ. And we're able, as we serve, it's like one voice shouting God's praises. There's, there's more I want to breeze through the, the text. It's been a, a long day. But let's, let's think about how goodness is shown. Do, do people see Christ in your goodness? Do, it, do people see Christ in what you're doing? If they do, then I must say it, it, it is good. Goodness is not about you showing off yourself, but it is about you showing off your Savior. Christ became a servant, as the text reminds us, to show God's truthfulness. Look at that. Verse 8, I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, talking about the Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy, which is where it all leads. As people look to Jesus Christ, they see two things. God is faithful to His promises. He keeps His Word. They see the goodness of Jesus and they they say that. Do they say that when they look at the goodness of Jesus in your life? Does, Does God keep His Word in your life? Do they see a testimony to God's faithfulness in you? But also... That was to the Jews, to the Gentiles. They see God's mercy. That those who were far and did not have any covenant relationship with God whatsoever could be brought near and have peace with the God that they had rejected. It's shown, it's confirmed, it's demonstrated. Uh, Christ became a servant. So I think we can become servants and do good as we serve. Something else to see. Goodness is sung because that's where He goes. Bottom line, Christ is good and He is our strength. The endurance Paul wrote about earlier testifies to that. He is also the substance of our song. And our lives are filled with song, which... Paul goes on to articulate and that song brings others to song because as people see Jesus and the goodness of Jesus in our lives as people of Jesus, the Gentiles glorify God for His mercy as they reflect on the promises of God fulfilled in the life of His people. Look at verse 9, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Verse 10, rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. Verse 11, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all peoples extol Him. Verse 12, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. It's sung, as as, um, we've heard it before many times, John Piper has said, missions exist because worship doesn't. But I want to say that we must not pursue missions as an end in itself, lest you get the wrong idea from, um, uh, you know, you were talking about missions this morning. Some people, they'll run with that and they will pursue missions as the end in itself. It's not the end. Paul Washer has helpfully said, "...the Great Commission is not the Great Command." If you do missions but don't love God and don't love people, it is worth nothing. That's what happens when you're pursuing mission just as the end. But when you are doing mission for the glory of God in the advance of the gospel as one who is loved and loves, it changes everything. Missions is worship if it is infused with the love of God and neighbor by people who know and rest in the truth that they are loved. And when it's not, we must ask, how can it truly produce worship? But when the goodness of God is our story, and when it's our song, and we are abiding in and resting in the goodness of God and walking in His goodness, as people see the goodness of Christ in us, they join in. Is that not good news? Changes how we approach missions. It's not about ticking the box of, you know, this many shares or this many interactions or this many professed faith. It's about have we been faithful as ones who love him who first loved us? This goodness is not a burden but it is a blessing. It is the response of people who have joy and peace in believing, and the one whom they believe gives them power to hope. Goodness is spoken. And what we speak is good news. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ to everyone who believes. Verse 13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Believe, and as you believe, he gives you joy and peace. And as you have joy and peace, you hope. And as you move forward in hope, you tell people Jesus saves to the uttermost. We read verse 14. He says, I'm I'm satisfied. You're full of goodness. You're filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. And that knowledge is the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And as we instruct each other, we are instructing each other towards Jesus. Throughout the verses that follow, he talks about how He has been made a minister of Christ to the Gentiles. How in Christ Jesus, he has reason, not in himself, in Christ he has reason to be proud of his work for God. He says, I will not venture, verse 18, to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. So that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to what? Preach the gospel. Preach the good news. The gospel of Christ. Not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundations. But as it's written, those who have never been told of Him will see. And those who have never heard will understand. We speak goodness. Every time we tell people about Jesus, we're, we're speaking goodness. That's his aim, so that people will believe. They will understand. And as they believe and understand, they have hope. Nietzsche is more famous, probably, for one quote than any other God is dead. That's what he said. God is dead, and we have killed him. Not quite. Nietzsche is dead. God is not. We did kill God with us once a long time ago. But he was alive in spirit, and he rose from the dead. And he is, as he always has been, truly good. Because God is alive, goodness is alive. And as we draw near to God, we experience and display God's goodness. As we're told in the psalm, taste and see that the Lord is good. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You and Your Word have not left us in despair. We who are... Yes, tainted by sin in every way. We who are, Our righteousness was as filthy rags. We have been washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. His righteousness is imputed to our account. We do not stand before you as those who are worthless, as those who have turned aside, as those who, who are not righteous, but we stand to before you tonight as those who are righteous because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Thank You for the gospel. Thank You that we stand in Christ, our sins forgiven, and Christ in us, our hope of heaven. And as we live on earth, we have the power to be and do good. Help us in this. Help us to not lose sight of this. And as we are good and as we do good and pursue goodness, we ask, Lord, that You would... um, You would help people to glorify you in heaven through our witness. What we say, what we show, may they see goodness, and may they hear good news. In Jesus' name, amen.